Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And uh, we are officially into a little bit of Halloween programming. We're getting there. Yeah. I mean, I start in July in my personal life, but I held out till now for the podcast. <laughs> just by tenterhooks, barely. Expect some s- scary things, scary people coming up over the next month or so. Well, I just think they're fascinating. Uh, Halloween is my favorite holiday. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, an American phenomenon that happened uh, for about 100 years. It was going on in New England where there were these bizarre uh Vampire panics. Yep. And while we live in an age when vampires are insanely popular as entertainment, uh, and they often become romantic interests for better or for worse, there have certainly been times in human history when fear of real and for true actual vampirism caused these outright panics. And for people to really enact some very bizarre rituals to try to quell this menace that they perceived around them. Yeah. Every time we, every time there's a news story that floats by about somebody discovering a quote vampire grave in some place, we get all these requests from people talk about that. Yeah. And there have been a lot. And we'll talk a little bit about one researcher who does a lot of uh, work specifically in that field. Uh, the word vampire, of course, originated in Slavic Europe in the 10th century. And there have been a number of vampire panics in Europe as well, uh, throughout uh, history from, you know, the 10th century right up until roughly the end of the 18th century. But at that point, it kind of started to fizzle out, like these instances where people became convinced en masse that there was a vampire in their midst. But as Europeans were moving to North America, uh, a lot of their superstitions came along for the ride. And it's in New England that we're focusing this lens today. Uh, and it's actually later in the historical record than people might anticipate. Because it does sound, you know, superstition on this level sounds a little wacky and a little old-fashioned, but... It's a lot more modern than you might think. It was happening way more recently than I think most people would suspect. Uh, and so first we're going to cover a couple of specific instances of vampire panic that happened in New England. And then we'll discuss some of the causes and circumstances around this phenomenon that kept repeating. And we're first going to start in Jewett City, Connecticut. So in the late 1840s through the mid-1850s in Jewett City, there was a vampire panic. So the Ray family of Jewett City experienced this series of tragedies uh, in which healthy members of the family, previously healthy members of the family, just wasted away. And most of the panic really was in the 1850s as as this family had begun to lose more and more members. So it wasn't like a panic that lasted 10 years. Um, but the events leading up to it really lasted that long. So first, uh, the Ray family's son, Lemuel, died. And then Henry, who was the father of the family, passed away a couple years after that. So this was late 1840s into early 1850s. And then Elisha was next. Uh, and then the eldest son of the family, Henry Nelson, and we'll refer to him by both names to keep him separate from the father, Henry, uh, also fell sick. So there was a lot of speculation going on about what was causing all of these deaths for this one family. And believing that the dead were somehow feeding on the living, two of the Ray sons were exhumed on June 8th, 1854. Their bodies were burned in this desperate attempt to try to end the family's suffering. 
And we don't really know why the Ray family attributed the later deaths to the buried relatives. But it appears that they thought that Lemuel and Elisha were somehow coming back, possibly as spirits, which was part of the vampire lore at the time, rather than the modern vampiric concept of the dead actually rising from the grave and biting people on the neck, uh, and that they were draining Henry Nelson, the eldest son. It's unclear also why their father, Henry, was not a suspect in all of this. They, there was never any indication that his grave had been intended to be disturbed. Just the two sons. Right. We also don't know when Henry Nelson died, but it appears that the tuberculosis outbreak, which was really the culprit, ended there. So tuberculosis is an infectious disease, as we know now, was not known at the time. Yeah. Uh, and it spread through bacteria. So the burning of their bodies might actually have helped contain the outbreak. Uh, so this sort of solidified this incorrect notion that what they had done had actually stopped the vampires. Yes. Yeah, so we know now that what was going on was that the family had what was called at the time consumption. Mm-hmm. And even so, and we'll talk about it, it comes up a little bit later, that sometimes these Cases of consumption were actually identified. They were diagnosed. But there was uh, an underlying fear about what was causing the illness. Right. And so because uh, tuberculosis wasn't identified until several decades later, even though consumption was identified, it was not known that it was bacterial. Right. And we that it was contagious. Didn't quite have the germ theory of disease yet. That was not quite there yet. Barely getting started. And it, it, that, like the germ theory didn't really spread. Like it was just in its infancy at this point. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 1920s that, that people really had the idea in their heads. Yeah. That germs cause disease. And even so, in more remote areas, it was entirely possible that, that that word would not have reached people yet. Absolutely. Uh, and so that's the Jewett City vampire case. And you'll sometimes hear them referred to. There's a, there are tours through town, et cetera. And you'll hear in um, circles of people that like to talk about these types of things, uh, the Jewett City vampires, even mm-hmm. though they were not actually vampires. Uh, and the next one we're going to talk about. So remember, that one was in the 1850s when that all happened. This one is a bit later, and it's quite famous. It's the Mercy Brown case. Uh, And so Mercy Lena Brown, and she went by Lena, was a resident of Exeter, Rhode Island, and she died there in 1892, so much later in the historical record. Right. When she died, the town was really struggling. The Civil War had claimed a lot of its its population, and that was really the case everywhere. Like, the Civil War could just eliminate huge numbers of people from a town's population. The railroad had also made it really easy for people to leave the area to try to find better farmland. Yeah. Uh, as a brief side note, Exeter was a farm community, but it's widely recognized that the soil there is not great for farming. That's the case in many parts yeah. of New England. It's very rocky sometimes. Yeah, we kind of talked about a similar thing in our Brook Farm episode, that these people set up a farm in a place that doesn't have a good soil. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Exeter was it was a farming community that got barely got by before all of these deaths and and people wanting to leave started to happen. Yeah. And then it really got rough. Well, and once the railroad made it much easier to move a farther distance away, there wasn't a huge draw for people to stay there, continuing to struggle to just to f- out a to fight with farm. Mother Nature. Right. 
1820 until the time of Lena's death, the population had gone from 2,500 people to 961. So, yeah, over the course of about 70 years, they lost well over half of their population. Now, Lena's mother had died 10 years earlier in 1882, and Lena's 20-year-old sister had died the year after their mother. So about a decade before, Lena became sick. Uh, two other women in her family had died. And uh, Lena's brother had become sick as well, but he left Exeter. He uh, moved to Colorado Springs in the hopes that a climate change would cure him. While Lena was dying, her brother Edwin came back. He had uh, had some health improvements for a little while while he was gone, but eventually he got sick again. So the story goes that the neighbors, thinking that uh, some sort of evil supernatural happening had reversed Edwin's remission when he came home, uh, they approached Lena's father, who's named George Brown, and they suggested that an exhumation of the uh, family members who had already died, and at this point Lena had passed, might lead to his son's recovery. So they thought, we might be able to save Edwin if we dig up the dead ladies. Right. So their goal was to check the hearts of the deceased to see if there was fresh blood in them. And that would be an indicator that the corpse was feeding on the living people. And George reluctantly agreed to do this. So on March 17th, 1892, his wife and his two daughters were unearthed. And I feel like I should mention, George did not believe in this nonsense. And he refused to be present at the exhumation. He was really, uh, most records indicate he was just trying to placate his neighbors because they were relentless. Um, and Lena, of course, had only been dead for about two months at this time. She died in January. And because it was winter, she had not decomposed all that much. While her mother and sister, again, having died almost a decade prior, were just skeletal at that point. They were just bones. Uh, there was actually a correspondent for the Providence Journal on hand for this disinterment, and he reported that, quote, the body was in a fairly well-preserved state. He's referring to Lena at this point. The heart and liver were removed, and in cutting open the heart, clotted and decomposed blood was found. The town doctor was also in attendance for this, as sometimes did happen during these exhumations. And he really was also trying to be the voice of reason. And he was like, no, she's got tuberculosis. She she has a lung disease. She died of this. She's This is not a vampire. Uh, But, of course, that kind of fell on deaf ears. Right. Mercy Lena Brown's liver and heart were burned there on the site. And the ashes were fed to her brother in an attempt to cure him of tuberculosis. But that, of course, did not work. No, he died like two months later. Right. Uh And because this particular vampire panic happened in the late 1800s and there was a reporter on hand to witness it, the story really spread. It actually ended up being picked up by the American Anthropologist Journal, uh, when a gentleman that wrote for them went to study it after he had read that initial account. And it ended up being talked about far and wide. And some historians actually believe that it was the Mercy Brown story that inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula, which published in 1897, although there is some debate over it. Um, some will say that the news that had spread out that led to specifics that seemed to parallel Bram Stoker's story. Not all of those specifics had really become public knowledge by the time he would have been working on it. So it's a, uh, it's an unknown, although there are some interesting parallels between the two. 
Uh, and the general reception of this story in the press and in public opinion was that really this was all just because of ignorance of small communities. Uh, and it was even characterized by some as a hoax by the time the the man who wrote for the American Anthropologist Journal showed up. They thought that people were kind of pulling his legs. Uh, and the Boston Globe actually even suggested that um, inbreeding and intermarrying in Exeter had resulted in this community that was not so intellectual and that they were kind of prone to buy into these crazy superstitions. Right. Uh, so the world at large thought a lot of this was crazy, even earlier than this story. But, right. uh, you know, these small communities would yeah. get the grip of the panic. As a side note, there's an episode of The Memory Palace that's about this specific vampire panic. You all would like to listen. And it's called Mary, Mary and Mercy. Mercy Brown's story is really quite famous in the vampire lore and New England lore on its own. Mm-hmm. Outside of... um you know, sort of paranormal enthusiasm because it is such so late in the game that it is a little startling, I think, for people. Right. In 1990, to move on to another story, uh, a group of children in Griswold, Connecticut, stumbled onto a previously unknown burial ground. And there had actually been a serial killer uh, in the area just prior to this. And because of that, a police investigation was started and the site that the children had found was excavated because initially they had just found like some bones and they weren't police and the authorities were not sure if they had found a burial site that this serial killer had been using. Uh, but it turned out that what they had actually unearthed was an interesting part of this area's history. And New England, for anyone who does not know, is actually filled with unmarked burial plots uh, left over from the colonial era, era, mostly, when families would establish these burial spaces, but they didn't always keep records of the interments, and they had eventually grown over with age, you know, as, as small townships had fallen away and died off and been replaced by bigger cities and people moved away. These burial plots weren't always... Uh, Maintained visibly. Right. So not quite as far back in history as the many, many, many bodies that are now under car parks um, (laughs) that we're constantly hearing about from the UK, Uh, but kind of similar in how people buried their loved ones and then moved on for whatever reason. And now something else got there. Eventually, authorities uncovered 29 graves, and most of these were just austere graves where people had been buried in very simple wooden boxes. There were 15 children, six adult males, and eight adult females. But there were also two stoned crypts that the state's archaeology team, which was led by Nick Bellantoni, were particularly interested in. And one of these crypts, which was labeled burial number four when they were doing the excavation, revealed a much different entombment than those that the team had uncovered up to that point. And instead of finding a body laid out simply in a wooden box with the arms either crossed over the chest or at the side, this had a coffin, which was painted red, and it had the initials JB and the number 55 laid out on the lid in brass tacks. And while the feet of the deceased were exactly where you would expect to find them in the coffin, uh, the rest of the body had been completely rearranged into a layout that was similar to a Jolly Roger but with the skull turned face down into the rib cage and then the leg and arm bones forming the cross underneath that. So analysis indicated that the beheading and the fracturing of the ribs and the dismemberment of the body had all happened several years after this JB had died. 
paleopathological evidence also revealed that JB had probably died of consumption. And two other sets of remains near JB, which were labeled IB, the number 46, and NB with the number 13, which we believe to be age indicators, uh, had also died of tuberculosis. IB was a woman and NB was a child. Uh, and now we're going to get into kind of the backstory and what happened as a result of that find. Um, so to return to our backstory for this, this family, Michael Bell, a Rhode Island folklorist and researcher and author of the book Food for the Dead on the Trail of New England's Vampires, has studied this New England vampire phenomenon for more than 30 years. And in that time, he's documented six dozen incidents of exhumations. And he believes really strongly that there were many, many others that just haven't been discovered yet. Yes. So when Tracy mentioned earlier that you sometimes read about uncovering a random grave, that he thinks that there are probably way more cemeteries that we haven't even stumbled upon yet. Right. Uh, the earliest exhumation that he's recorded is from the late 1700s. And the furthest away from New England that he's recorded is uh, happened in Minnesota. For context, the Salem witch hunts were primarily slotted in the 1690s. So this was sometime after that. Yes. Yeah, so even the earliest incident of this vampire panic was roughly 100 years later than the witch hunts had kind of happened and and died off. So, you know, I don't know, socially it filled a gap of a need for a superstitious uh, paranormal situation. But the 1794 scare that uh, Bell has studied actually involved a letter from a councilman, which was printed in the Connecticut Courant and Weekly Intelligencer. And this letter actually warned the editor and readers of the paper about a quack doctor who was suggesting exhumation and burning of the dead to stop consumption, which was believed to be done by these dead bodies, like the consumption had been initiated by them. Most of the research into this practice of exhuming bodies during the vampire scare is based on handwritten records. And many grave sites are similar to the ones in the Griswold discovery that we just talked about. And they're unmarked and sort of lost in time. And the genesis of the vampire fear that was happening in New England in this period really has yet to be pinpointed. But as with any folkloric myth, it's likely that there's no single starting point. Rather, a small seed of a legend fed a lurking and present fear of the unexplained, because even though they could diagnose consumption, they didn't know what caused it. Uh, and in turn, that would all add to the mythology and, you know, build the legend and that would feed more fear and so on, the way these things happen. And certainly a doctor suggesting the idea, like, that we should burn these bodies because they're feeding off the living would allow that superstition to gain a little bit of ground. So that 1794 incident, you know, probably added a significant groundswell to what was already likely being talked about in communities. Right. And on top of that, if you're not actually familiar with medicine or anatomy or the way bodies decompose, it's easy to misinterpret normal decomposition through this lens of cognitive bias and a lack of medical knowledge. It's easy to misinterpret that as some kind of supernatural thing going on. So bloated corpses were often described as looking like they had just eaten, for example, or blood coming from the mouth was held up as proof that this dead body had been feeding on a living. Yeah, when there are accounts of uh, these exhumations and people have kept journals or written about them, 
They do. They reference it was clear this must have been happening because the body was bloated. It had just eaten and the hair had continued to grow. They didn't know that that happened yet yeah. uh, as part of decomposition. And Well, it's that it's that your skin recedes right. and it looks like your hair and your nails are growing, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So they were attributing this to this dead body somehow getting, you know, nutrition from <laughs> from uh, these people that were dying of consumption. And the Jewett City panic and similar incidents had all really taken place in rural, fairly isolated areas. They were often small farming communities. There are records, such as journal entries and even newspaper write-ups from cities and more metropolitan areas, that really suggest that when outsiders like would travel through these small towns or small settlements, they really kind of chalk this up as like crazy superstition and that these were just really overzealous uneducated farm folk who didn't know any better than to blame common things on the supernatural. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in many instances, the consumption that was actually killing people had really been diagnosed by a doctor. But because people didn't really know what was causing consumption, it was still believed that it was somehow the dead that were doing it. Yeah, I think a lot of people tend to assume, uh, and it, it's often not clear when you're reading some of these articles uh, and accounts of what happened. They think that people didn't know that people were dying of a disease. They just sort of thought suddenly people were dying and they didn't know what caused it. And and while they didn't know the cause of consumption and that, and that it was bacterial, there were doctors saying this person has consumption. Right. They are going to die. Uh So there is still this, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of knowledge, but it wasn't enough. And, you know, it's worth uh, considering the fact that in the face of a disease that was incurable at the time, it's understandable that there was likely a strong desire to do something, anything to try to remedy the situation. Right. Even if it was the bizarre digging of bodies and burning of corpses or parts of corpses and sometimes consuming them and right. uh, it all it all is kind of wacky and bizarre and seems extreme but if you just have you can't do anything but you feel the need to do something yeah that well, seemed like their avenue and because there were people who you know by some combination of of luck and their their constitution and their immune system did not die there was a lot of trying to figure out okay why did that person right why did that that per- clearly there must be something we can do because that person lived. survived. And this is something that, you know, human beings continue to do today. People will try all kinds of stuff when, you know, told that they have something that's not treatable by conventional, you know, Western medicine. Yeah. Well, and it's worth noting that Mercy Brown's father, who gave in to this request to exhume his family's remains, though he was not there and did think it was Huey, he never got consumption, even though three members of his family, four members of his family died of it. Uh, and some people said it was because he didn't believe that he somehow had, you know, magically created this talisman for himself of not acknowledging the spirits. And so they couldn't get him. And in some ways, even though scientifically you would say this, you know, supports the idea that this wasn't really a functioning, working approach to dealing with this disease, some people were able to spin his he- good health as a way to somehow prove that, in fact, no, no, the spiritual angle is correct. Now, I, I somehow want to do an episode on the history of magical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it would require all of my research for all time forever 
And then the episode would be like nine million hours long. Well, it's and it's hard to find your way into like where you latch in to start. Right. Something like that. Because it is that's a long and storied tradition. Yes. So while there were uh, many, many uniting factors in most communities that had one of these vampire exhumations take place, they were all rural. They were all battling disease outbreaks. The manner in which the ritual work was done was not consistent among all of these events. Yeah. Some instances of vampire exhumation involved a great deal of ritual. Uh, one practice documented in some cases in Vermont, Connecticut, and Rhode Island involved burning the dead person's heart, often mixed with herbs, and inhaling the smoke as a cure for a disease. Uh, there's also the eating the ashes ritual that was used in the Mercy Brown exhumation. But there were other communities that took a really simple approach. They would uh, merely open the grave, flip the body face down, and then rebury it. Yeah, the thinking being now when this tries to get out, it will just be going deeper into the earth. Correct. Like it won't, it won't understand its orientation. People think ghosts are dumb. <laughs> smart enough to feed off the living, not smart enough to roll over. <laughs> So, Vermont's exhumations and burning rituals were much more of a public spectacle than anywhere else, and often they took place in the town square. This is probably because a lot of townships in the area at the time had their cemeteries close to the center of town rather than way out on the outskirts, as was customary in other places. So this meant it would be tricky to carry out the whole business of addressing this vampire problem in any sort of secret, low-key way. So instead, it just became this extremely public practice. Yeah, and most other communities you read about, it's kind of like a, a group of strong-willed men kind of get together in the dead of night, and they're going to go do this gruesome thing to protect the town or protect a family. And they kind of kept it on the DL. They didn't really, <laughs> but in Vermont, they were kind of like, party in the town square, we're going to burn some vampires. Yep. Is you know, they can't really hide it when it's right there. Yeah, hard to, to dig up a grave in plain sight uh, and still keep it quiet. And of course, there is um, the Griswold case where the body was exhumed and the bones were rearranged in an effort to keep the dead from rising up to claim the victims. And so this is a little different than most of the more common approaches. Um, uh, two researchers, uh, including uh, Nicholas Bellantoni and Paul S. Sledzik, who, which I hope I pronounced correctly, wrote uh, an article in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology in 1994 about it. And they suggested the idea that since this J.B. character was exhumed approximately five years after his death, uh, decomposition would have been so advanced that he probably wasn't any more than bones to work with. And since they could not find a blood-engorged heart or other flesh to burn, the exhumers likely improvised this rearrangement into the skull and crossbones style. Uh, because there have not been a lot of those found. I, that might be the only one, in fact. So uh, it, we have all of this knowledge of these things happening, but we don't have a lot of evidence outside from personal accounts and written word. And yeah. there have been instances where there are suspected graves where people think if we 
uh, could dig up this old plot we found. We might find some more evidence, but some communities are like, please don't do that. Um, they're, they're not always into the idea of just digging up bodies in the yeah. interest of finding vampire lore. Not everyone is ex- as excited about exhumation <laughs> as many stuff you missed in history class listeners yeah. are. So, so far, uh, the Griswold, Connecticut JB is the only instance where we actually have a visual confirmation of this practice of exhuming the dead to deal with a vampire threat. Yeah, we have lots of historical accounts and journals and articles and things, but not so many in the United States actual graves. Yeah. Full of messed up bones and bodies. Yeah. And so, you know, the Mercy Brown incident was kind of considered the the bookend by many to this bizarre panic and outbreak, because after that, as we said, it got publicized, it got talked about. I mean, news of it traveled to London and to Europe. And uh, it seems like people suddenly kind of turned the mirror on this practice and went, oh, oh, oh. yeah. And plus, they were moving out of these smaller communities to bigger places to find their fortunes. And mm-hmm. that sort of groupthink superstition that can sometimes happen This seemed to dissipate around then. So, yeah, well, and the, the state of medical knowledge was just so much different at the time. And this is something that you and I talked about before we recorded our recent episode on Phineas Gage. That uh, it was really hilarious in a way <laughs> to me to read these accounts from people who were writing as though they totally knew what they were talking about, but actually had no idea that pathogens cause disease. Like, yeah, it's you will read medical documents from you know before the late eight, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, where people just seem to completely know what they are talking about, but what they are talking about is not based on the reality of medicine as we know it today at yeah. all. Well, and some of it's just that they didn't have all the the data to interpret the data they did have. Right. So it was easy to kind of, you know, extrapolate things down a wrong path. Right. That- they weren't necessarily using the scientific method <laughs> to approach questions of medicine. If this if these stories interest you a lot, there's an awesome podcast called Sawbones. Yeah. From Maximum Fun. Um, it is by Sydney and Justin McElroy, and Sydney is a medical doctor, and she talks to her husband about just the crazy, ridiculous things that used to happen, and sometimes still do happen, in the world of medicine. And they have done lots and lots of awesome episodes, including one on John Harvey Kellogg that actually has some information in it that is not an hour one. So Huzzah! even if you... A nice interlocking. Yeah. Of, yeah. Even if you think you know all the things about John Harvey Kellogg, just give that a listen anyway. So that's the scoop on the vampire it scare. Is the scoop. Do you have some listener mail to cap this episode off? I do. I actually have two pieces. The first one is from uh, Sarah Kate, and it's short. She says, hello, gals. Holly, like you, I sew daily. In fact, I first heard about the podcast during a mending session I was teaching about darning. And she says, now I listen to the podcast when I sew. She says, I appreciated the episode about the invention of the sewing machine and the resulting patent disputes. I'd like to hear a podcast about mercerized cotton, thread, or viscose, which I understand to be made of, among other things, wood pulp. That's correct. Heck, nylon spandex elastic. Now that was a great invention. It was even used in corsets before they faded away. And why does elastic lose its stretch, as rubber bands do? Do they become unstretchable in time? Yours in the needle arts, Sarah Kate. And I, uh, she sent us a link to her uh, blog, which covers her projects, which are very cool. She does a lot more of sort of heirloom style sewing. Yeah. Uh, which is really, really lovely. And I wanted to read this because um, while we don't have an immediate plan to talk about those things here, 
uh, as most of you may know, and stuff if you listen to stuff to blow your mind, mm-hmm. Robert is traveling. And so while he is in China, which I know he has told their listeners he's doing, uh, I'm going to sub in on one of their episodes. And Julie and I have talked about that we want to talk about textiles because nice, that's my jam. Yeah. <laughs> and so we are going to talk about some of those things. One of the awesome things about working at a place that has so many cool podcasts is that when we do have someone who's on leave for some reason, well, there's all kinds of cool substitutions that people get to play with. Yeah. Uh, some of our other editors have recorded with Julie already, and I'm going to talk about Velcro a lot because uh, I'm really fascinated by it from a scientific point of view. And our other one is from our listener, Catherine. And I'm not reading her whole email because uh, it's lengthy, but... She talks about food, so you know I want to talk about it. Uh, she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, usually while fulfilling the less brainy aspects of my job as an archivist at the Montana Historical Society. Uh, she has lots of reboxing of documents and sorting and microfiche. I have worked in archives before. I know there are times when your brain is not getting stimulated. I know it seems like you would have to be, but not always. Uh, I was on a hike, though, when I finally got around to listening to your podcast on ice cream over Labor Day weekend, which may have been a poor decision considering the heat of the day and the dearth of ice cream atop Mount Helena. Anyway, though it's not my area in particular, the history of cooking and other, quote, women's work is something of a specialization of a few of our research center and museum staff. So I've been exposed to some interesting tidbits about it over the past year and a half. Ice cream came to Montana before the days of refrigerators. In the summertime, homesteaders would sometimes take advantage of hailstorms to provide the needed ice. Okay, that's so cool. That's brilliant. Uh, And there's at least one documented case of people going up into the mountains to fetch snow to make ice cream for a 4th of July picnic. One of my favorite things about working at MHS has been testing historic recipes. We had hand-cranked ice cream one afternoon in June, as well as a pancake breakfast earlier this spring. Uh, and more than a dozen of us for Pie Day made pies from historic recipes found in the Historical Society's extensive cookbook collection. Mine was an odd example of a non-creamy banana pie from a book printed in 1893. And of course, everyone got to sample the pies once the judges had finished their taste tests. And then she talks about uh, some other interesting topics that may become a podcast for us. But I, first, that just sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I would love to work in a place with a bazillion historical cookbooks. As a side note that I know from my time in libraries, cookbooks are one of the few books that pretty consistently gain and appreciate in value. Ooh. Because, so if you have an old one that's in good condition, because uh-huh. that's part of the problem, is that they get used and they get food stains on them and <laughs> butter covered, on the pages. They're covered and, in flour and grease and everything. Uh, yeah, when um, my mother passed away, which is quite a, a while ago, I was working in a library and she collected cookbooks and the first thing our uh, library head said was, when you are ready, I would like to talk to you about your mother's cookbook collection. Ooh. And so a lot of those ended up in a library. Because yeah. no one was going to use them in the family. Not because they weren't cool, but I mean, if you tried to tackle three recipes a day for the rest of your life, you wouldn't get through them. Yeah. Uh, and that way it kind of felt like other people could really benefit from it. So. Well, and suddenly I, I spent this past weekend in Asheville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. where there is a used and rare bookshop called The Captain's Bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Now I wish I had spent a lot more time looking, there was a cookbook section, and I kind of looked at it tangentially and said, you already have a joy of cooking, right? Yes. Okay. And then that <laughs> that was the end of my thought process. And I'm like, man, I wish I had plundered through that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like every um, cookbook is going to appreciate in value, particularly now that we have 
multiple printings of popular television personality. Like, it's mm-hmm. unlikely that your Rachel Ray book is going to be really valuable in 10 years. Right. Not that there's not good stuff in it. It's just not the same uh, sort of... Uh, supply and demand issues that some of the older cookbooks that were printed like in the early 1900s have really appreciated in value if there's a good copy still around. So just interesting cookbook nerdery. If you would like to write to us about historical things you have cooked or anything you've cooked or your pets or anything we've talked about, uh, you can do so at historypodcast@discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History and at Facebook.com slash History Class Stuff. You can visit us on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we are on Pinterest pinning away. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website, type in the word vampire, and you will get a lot of things, including how vampires work. And a quiz to see if you might be a vampire. Yes. <laughs> you can a lot learn. of vampire happening. Yeah, you can learn about that and almost anything else you can think of, Halloween season related or otherwise, at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.